Okay, I have a question for you. Who do you huh? think would win in a fight? Maverick from Top Gun or Topper Harley from Hot Shots? <laughs> I mean, <have laughs> who you, would win? Have you seen Hot Shots Part 2? <laughs> <laughs> right. I mean, that's the thing. I came, Topper got that's ripped. <laughs> exactly. That's the same conclusion that I came to, is that if you include Hot Shots 2, Topper is literally invincible. He, he's a it's killing like, machine. He's unbelievably <laughs> ripped. He, he's super powered. He's super strong, super durable. So I guess for this to be fair, we'd have to pair him only against Hot Shots 1 Topper, who is a very normal man. The topper still wins, hands down. He takes out 10 enemy fighters with no... No guns or missiles at the end of that movie. It's insane. He's, he's the crazy. best pilot ever. <laughs> Just to get the facts straight, Topper Harley took out nine MIGs. I, I guess that's what they call them. With no weapons. And then he <laughs> no. took out the nuclear base, which was their mission, with no weapons, using the bad guy's <laughs> own missiles to destroy the base. <laughs> and then he made it back and landed with no radar, no fuel, no, <laughs> no wings, wings, and no engine. <laughs> Well, as a kid, that was my favorite part of the movie, where he's like, lost my wing. You're doing great. There goes there the other goes one. the other one. <laughs> just keep her steady. <laughs> just crash straight down. I love Washout's unwavering optimism as he guides Topper down. Oh. Dude, wow, we're coming off a high after interviewing Jack Epps Jr. What a guy. He was so cool. I can't believe it. He came on our podcast. He was super nice. He was willing to answer all of our silly questions. He is the writer of Top Gun, Anaconda, Turner and Hooch. Uh, he did a rewrite of Die Hard with a Vengeance. Uh, he's just a prolific writer. It was such an honor to have him come on our podcast, and you listeners will get to hear some of the clips from our interview with him and some of his reactions to our theories. So without further ado, here he is, Jack Epps Jr. Hi, it's nice to be here. I'm looking forward to talking to you about uh, my movies and any questions you have. I was wondering if you could tell us just real quick, like how you got started as a screenwriter, how you ended up pairing up with Jim Cash and, and how that all happened. I started getting involved in film at Michigan State University, made a short film for a class and just fell in love. And that was my life destiny. And I just that was it. Every second moving forward was really focused on film and how I could make more movies. Uh, Jim Cash was my screenwriting instructor at Michigan State. And uh, he was older than me, but he was a novelist. Uh, mm -hmm. And I read his novel and he was a good writer. And we sort of hit it off. I moved out to California. I work as a P.A., I also work as assistant cameraman. That was my day job is loading film, you know, and also the cameraman shooting on documentaries. It paid my bills. It actually took me to a stint where I was able to work for Orson Welles on uh, the other side of the wind. And that was pretty cool. Just being in the aura of Orson Welles and seeing really the amazing guy putting this sort of wild movie together. I also wrote with another partner, Anderson House, a Hawaii 5.0 that got produced. Jim Cash, who was in East Lansing, heard that I had got sold something. He said, you know, we should try to write something together. And I always respected Jim's work. We did a project long distance because Jim lived in East Lansing. He had a fear of flying, which is sort mm -hmm. of interesting. He wrote, you know, right. one of the greatest <laughs> flying films of all time. He did not want to get up in an airplane. <laughs> and I was in, in, in Santa Monica, California, and we would write long distance, you know, pre-internet, where we'd be sending stuff through the mails and stuff like that. And AT&T had a monopoly on phones, so we couldn't afford to talk that much. So we had uh. to do things, you know, long distance. And we started writing, you know, on spec. I realized that you don't enter the business, you know, with, oh, here's my thing I did in a week. No you got to make sure that you create something that people sit up and go, wow, oh, gee, this is really interesting. So Jim and I actually spent almost two years, five drafts, writing this script called Izzy and Moe, which was based on two prohibition agents in the 1920s. They're trying to arrest Carolina Sunday, the queen of speakeasies. And finally, I said, OK, this is at a level now where I think the town's going to pay attention to us. And we sent it out, got an option from... Uh, Bud Yorkin, who was part of the team of Yorkin and Lear, 
who had done uh, All in the Family. So they had a lot of money. We got well paid. It was for the option. And it's like, wow, we should keep doing this. Yeah. And then we did another spec. We sold that on an auction. And then we got hired to write another script called Whereabouts for Joe Wazan. And that was a script that it elevated us way to a high level on town because it's just we nailed it. You know, sometimes you do good. Sometimes you do great. And sometimes you do the impossible. And that one just got us to everybody in town. And that's when we started getting projects. And that's how ultimately Top Gun came to us uh, because of, well, actually Dick Tracy first through John Landis. And uh, our work in Dick Tracy then brought us to Simpson, Brock Conger, and Jerry, uh, Jeffrey Katzenberg at, at Paramount. Top Gun. That's the movie we're discussing today. So Top Gun came out in 1986. It was directed by Tony Scott. And then, of course, starring Tom Cruise, Val Kilmer, Kelly McGillis, just tons of amazing actors. I think they're all perfect for their roles. It was written by Jim Cash and, of course, Jack Epps Jr. and Ehud Yone. He wrote a magazine article called Top Guns. It was Jerry Bruckheimer who found an article okay. in the California magazine that said there was this fighter pilot school called the Top Gun School. He mm-hmm. then optioned it, took it to Jeffrey Katzenberg at Paramount. I was working with Katzenberg and Dick Tracy. I had a breakfast meeting. He pitched me eight ideas because he wanted me to do another project for Paramount. And one of them was Top Gun. I got my private pilot's license when I was an undergraduate at Michigan State. Flying was like something I had, I didn't do it anymore because I realized that I didn't fly enough and it was a license to kill myself. Oh, but no. every pilot wants to every flying a jet fighter. We had six unproduced movies at that point, and I figured if this movie didn't get produced, at least I could have ride in a jet plane. Yeah. But then it was talking my partner Jim Cash into it that was difficult because Jim didn't right. like flying. So I'm going, oh, man, no, this is right. a movie you owe me this. Let's do this one. And he agreed, <laughs> mm-hmm. and so it became my job because I'm on feet on the ground to find out what is that movie. It's fighter pilots, so I knew it was going to be an adventure. I knew it was going to be, you know, I wanted it filmed, you know, at 28,000 feet. And so I went and did research at NAS Miramar outside San Diego. Actually, with, with Jerry Breckheimer, we went back to Washington, met at the Pentagon, because wow. we both agreed that unless we could get the Navy planes, we can't make this movie. There's no point in doing it. We pitched the Pentagon, and they said, sounds like a good idea. They gave us access to the base. We got a technical advisor, a man by the name of Pete Pettigrew, who was a MIG killer in Vietnam, also a Top Gun instructor and an amazing guy. And then I went to NAS Miramar and interviewed just a ton of pilots and just asked them about, you know, just their life and who they were and what was going on. Then I got my jet ride, (laughs) which changed the movie because I had to do three days of training because you have to know how to eject. Because if you're flying a jet, there's a pretty good chance you're going to you know, you might have to eject and what, what goes yeah. through it. So you train for that and you land in the water. So you train for landing in the water and you train for getting in a helicopter. And that was great research because goose yeah. came out of that. The accident, yeah. the whole sense of Navy came out of that experience. And then flying in the jet, they said, well, we're not supposed to do this, but we're going to do this. So putting wingtip <laughs> to wingtip, flipping over, doing high speed passes, pulling eight G's, oh you gosh. know, just doing all the vertical stuff. And for me, <laughs> One of the most important things, I don't want to throw up in the plane. Don't throw up in the plane. And they really enjoy making you do that. So I was very cognizant. I didn't eat any breakfast. I didn't drink any water. I said, I'm getting nothing in my body, man. And it was great. It was one of the most amazing experiences in my life. These guys were doing things at angles that, you know, we, we're, having, we're, we're trying to walk and talk at the same time. And these guys are just spinning stuff around mm. and doing these close passes. I mean, it was breathtaking. And I was exhausted. Because when you pull G-force at eight Gs, you've got to sort of grunt to get the blood up to your head because otherwise right. you pass out. You're going through these Gs. You're like, oh, 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 trying to get blood up there. I don't want to pass out. You know, because you'll, you'll t- get tunnel vision, start to gray out, which means you're passing out. And I called my partner afterwards. And I said, man, we've been looking at this project. This, yeah. These guys are the greatest athletes in the world. Yes, they're pilots, but they're doing stuff that's aerobatic stuff and G-forces. We've got to look at this almost as a sporting event. Yeah. That sort of became the metaphor for us. Part of being a writer is how do you step into the project? How do you find your way into it? What's your connection to it? I played ice hockey. I was a goaltender. Uh, I was on the freshman team at Michigan State. You know, and part of that is if you can be a goaltender, you got to be on the ice, right? You don't want to sit in the bench. Mm-hmm. You don't want to watch some other guy play. You know, they don't rotate in. So being the 
that guy that was part of the story is you know me being one number one goaltender maverick's gotta be number one fighter pilot so yeah. that's sort of how we got yeah. into the project one of the reasons top gun to me is so fascinating is just because it's not what you would expect if someone says it's a fighter pilot movie like it's the fighter pilot movie the one that spawned a whole genre you watch it and it does have a lot more in common with a sports movie. It's a drama and it's about the characters. And I wonder, was there ever any pressure to like make it more of a fighting dogfight type movie? Here's where we're really fortunate. And this doesn't happen very often. We as writers were suddenly in high demand because of Dick Tracy work and stuff. Our scripts went all over town. I said to Don Simpson, Jerry Bruckheimer, the producers, I said, we'll do this, but you have to leave us alone. We have to find <laughs> the movie. I can't pitch this to you. And if you don't want to do that, then we're not the guys to write this movie. And they wanted us. And they said, fine. We didn't have to go in and pitch it. Because if we pitched it, you're right. It would have been more dogfighting, more action. Because how do you pitch the guys? You know? (laughs) Yeah. What we're lucky is we had Pete Pettigrew, who was a fighter pilot. And he introduced me to all these guys. They were open to me. And one of the really most memorable moments I had, we were sitting around in a grill talking. And they start talking about the guys that they lost in Vietnam. And mm-hmm. I could see the, the pain that they were still feeling, the sense of loss, that it was really deep and personal. And that really struck me just how tight they were as a community. And that's part of what gave me the inspiration for Goose is if I can make the audience feel what I'm feeling right now and they're feeling, then I will have succeeded. So we sort of built yeah. it around the idea that not only is it dangerous, but this is a community. And these guys are really connected in a very deep way. I think that Top Gun kind of stands on a pillar as the beginning of an era of Air Force style movies and kind of was the birth of a subgenre or like a trope of these two brotherly pilots relying on each other, but then possibly one of them dies and it's so sad and they have to get over it, right? But there's also a few other theories surrounding Top Gun. Yeah, we've got like three theories we're going to talk about today. So the first one is sort of a theory about the cultural impact of Top Gun, specifically as it has to do with sort of spawning a subgenre that we see mostly in Japanese animation. We're going to talk about just the impact it had on the evolution of the giant robot fighting subgenre, which ultimately kind of culminated in Pacific Rim... Guillermo del Toro. Yeah. And then probably the most well-known theory about Top Gun is that the entire movie is a metaphor for Maverick's struggle with his own sexuality. And then finally, in the end, embracing his homosexuality instead of heterosexuality, which was, of course, popularized by the one and only Quentin Tarantino. (laughs) But of course, it existed before him. And, uh, you know, I think it's a little brazen if you would even call it a theory. I I think it's pretty much (laughs) confirmed. (laughs) The next theory that we have is perhaps Maverick, the main character, was the villain and Iceman is the hero. I have seen it hypothesized that like every kind of problem in the movie stems from Maverick. Oh, hey, wow. Hey, Torvald. You think he's such a villain, such an anti-hero? Yeah, you think you can support bad. that theory? He's bad What news. about the very beginning of the movie where he goes out and does an extremely heroic, albeit rule-breaking thing when he saves Cougar? Cougar is dying and Maverick could just leave him to like run out of fuel, I guess. But instead he goes, risks running out of fuel himself to go talk Cougar down from the sky and land. That was pretty heroic. It's true, but he was also blatantly disobeying orders (laughs) and also risking himself in his aircraft. And also, what did he even do up there? There's nothing that he did up there that he couldn't have done from below with the radio, right? Like, he just talked to him over the radio. This is right after he did an inverted 4G dive right just next to a directly MiG that they took a, a picture MiG. of. <laughs> Pretty cool. All of the scenes in the movie of aircraft flying around are just astonishingly good. It looks so good. So that's real. How did they even get those shots? Did they fly a jet with a camera that close to the other jets? It was Tony Scott, who was the director, who was a great visualist, who really understood it. So the pilots are the Top Gun instructors. <laughs> they would actually go and figure out what they could. T- they'd say, they'd say, OK, guys, tell me what you want and we'll figure out how to do it. 
And then you put the cameras. And then Tony set a camera on on a sort of a mountaintop, not too high, so they could fly by real close. The F-14 was a great plane and had mounts on it so they could actually photograph the plane and and just, you know, learn about it and stuff like that. So it had Mm -hmm. camera mounts already on the plane. Your eyes go crazy. So when you see the guys flick their eyes around, it's because G-forces cause you, you they flatten out your pupils. So Mm. the detail work was really good. And again, I go back to thanking Pete Pettigrew, who then became the technical advisor on the film. So it was done with the help of Navy pilots, with the input of Navy pilots. So it was realistic. We tried to base on, on real stuff and not just make up a bunch of crazy stuff. That is so cool. So to get back to the idea of Maverick as kind of the villain of the story, Maverick was blatantly disobeying direct orders and also risking himself in his aircraft. And I I think this sets the tone for all of Maverick's decisions, right? Like he's very courageous, but he's also very risky and just kind of does what he wants instead of what other people tell him to. I was kind of wondering, did he pick his own call sign, Maverick? (laughs) Because that kind of seems like what he would call himself. (laughs) Okay, so here's here's the true story on that, okay? So as writers, we're writing the script, and so we're coming up with the character, and we didn't want to use any call signs of existing pilots, because I don't want somebody to say, oh, it was my story, and therefore I'm suing you. You know, So it's like, let's yeah, think of all original call signs. If you were raised in my time watching television, you watch a great show called Maverick. <laughs> so <laughs> that name was very well known. And Jim and I say, look, let's call, let's call sign Maverick. Thinking that it would never, that the studio would say, no, you can't stew on the nose, all that sort of stuff. So we, we just, we sort of used it to help clue us on the character. So we knew exactly who that guy was. And then we come to just like it because it's sort of epitomized. Now, here's a true story. You don't make up your own call sign. Okay. If you make up your call sign, it doesn't go well. So a guy shows up <laughs> as a fighter pilot and he says his name is Shark. Okay. They said, right. no, you're not Shark. You're Minnow. <laughs> And for the rest of his career, he was known as Minnow. You get attached to call sign, and that's yours. You have no choice in it. He was just so much of a maverick that they they started calling him that. That's exactly it. He's that guy who's saying, don't leave your wingman. <laughs> Let me see. I can give you like a whole list of all the things that he does that cause problems for people. Let's start off with before the movie even started, in my opinion, I think he's already basically disqualified himself as a pilot because according to Viper, Maverick has lost his qualifications as section leader three times. He was put in hack twice by Viper himself and has a history of high-speed passes over five air control towers and one Penny Benjamin, the daughter of a general. <laughs> Apparently, he uh, he buzzed her house. <laughs> that was based on a real story that happened. One of the pilots did that. These guys were, like, like, like they called, they were like their hair on fire. Because at that point, the Navy really wanted the personality of the guys, do your thing, be unpredictable, because we were in a battle with the Soviets who were very, you do it this way. But we're like cowboys. I mean, there's a John Wayne's out there. Come on, baby. And so he went and, and boomed this house. And actually, I, I, can't, I don't know who the pilot was, but he went over this house, a low speed pass, and actually oh. knocked the house off the foundation. So, oh my gosh. So, a high speed pass over a house. But no, <laughs> so what was really great is the pilots were on set, right? These guys are there. They're using real pilots in some of these scenes. And so they throw stories and they tell stories and it would get written into the film immediately. They just throw it in there. Wow. That's crazy. <laughs> so here's another thing that he does in the movie, which is not good. In a training exercise with his commanding officer, Jester, he's trying to, in a simulated way, shoot Jester's aircraft down. Jester flies below the hard deck, which is an altitude that they have defined in the rules of engagement where they said, we will not attempt an attack below this altitude. So Jester is below that altitude. Maverick follows him below that altitude and attacks him in the simulation that they're doing. So he beats Jester, but he violates the rules of engagement. Now, you do not violate the rules of engagement. Coming from a security perspective, when a company needs its security capabilities assessed, something that they might do is to hire a team of experts to perform something called a penetration test, which is when this team of highly skilled experts does everything they can to breach the security of this company and get past its defenses. Now, 
It's very important that before they do everything they can, they establish rules of engagement with the company. Because if they just want to do everything they can, then it can get out of hand like really, really fast. Because otherwise, I need to breach the security of this company. Well, the easiest way to do that would be like, I don't know, buy a tank and knock down the wall and just walk in, right? Like you need to have rules that you will not violate. So you need to put specific limitations on what they can and can't do. Same goes here. Maverick's actions in violating the rules of engagement, well, those rules were put in place to protect people. And then, right after, to celebrate, he calls the air traffic controller and says, hey, can I buzz the tower? The air traffic controller says, no, don't buzz the tower. He says, the pattern is full. And basically what that means is that there is no available spot for you to do this maneuver because there are airplanes there. So what he's saying is, don't do this or someone might get hurt. Why would they ever say, yes, buzz the tower? (laughs) Maverick just does it anyway. Once again, compromising other people's safety. He spills his coffee. In this case, just because he wanted a thrill. Well, absolutely. I mean, we see him as a flawed guy who's got problems and that he's got something that he needs to deal with uh, and come to terms with. And unfortunately, it creates a huge tragedy. Um, And it was more of not an anti-hero, but not a traditional. I'm not a big fan of Mr. Perfect. I really like flawed right. characters because they're like us. You know, I mean, uh, I'm messed up. I don't know about you. I got all sorts of shit I'm dealing with, you know. <laughs> so, and I like those sort of characters. And Maverick had stuff he was dealing with and things that he needed to come to terms with. It's these flaws that actually culminate in his ultimate failure of riding Iceman way too close and pushing and pushing until Iceman pulls off and he gets caught in the wash, which causes Goose's death. So I guess there's three camps in the fan community. One camp thinks that Iceman was responsible. The other camp thinks Maverick was responsible. And then the third camp thinks it was just an accident. Nobody was responsible. Why did Iceman hesitate to take the shot against Jester? It kind of seemed almost out of character for him because he was just such a hot shot, right? Like he was so good. But then he kept hesitating. He kept saying, just 20 more seconds, just 10 more seconds. What was going on here? Had to get it right. Had to get it right. Okay, so he was like a perfectionist. Yeah. So let me go back a little bit, okay? Because part of this yeah. got it got changed. Originally, it was a midair collision. So the Navy said, "I'm sorry, but we don't have midair collisions, and you cannot have a midair collision." <laughs> of course, the fact they have them, they just don't want it. You know. So okay, right. that had to be changed for the Navy, and then <laughs> it became okay. It's a jet wash thing. It's a great question because Maverick's being super aggressive and he's pushing into the jet wash and he's oh, going yeah. above what he should do. And he knows Mm -hmm. it's there. And so I do believe he bears responsibility for being super aggressive. And I think that's part of his guilt. That was something done production wise. So I have to be a fan at this point and sort of give you my interpretation of it. Because whenever I watch it, I always go, shit, shit. He wasn't supposed to be responsible for this. Oh, my God. (laughs) I think that theory, there's a lot of support for that. So you would say it's more Maverick's fault than Iceman's. Unintentional. If Mav just pulls out, there's no problem. He waits, but he, you know, he's so aggressive and he's so much into this thing he's got to do that it puts him into a, a dangerous situation. And you don't think there's any validity to the idea that Iceman put Maverick in his wash on purpose to kind of get him out of the running for the trophy? I would okay. say no, 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 no. You know, as a pilot, whether you're putting yourself into a dangerous situation. So it's Maverick's yeah. responsibility from a flying point of view to okay. not in the jet wash. I think the idea here is that maybe the movie was written with him in mind as, if not the villain, then at least as the antagonist, right? Like, he is the source of all the problems. Now, he's also the main character, but you might say that with Maverick being the source of all the problems in this movie, that Iceman is the hero of the movie. You might be able to even write the movie from Iceman's perspective and have like a completely different movie featuring the exact same events mm-hmm. because then we'd be cheering for Iceman. I'd like to get that movie. I'd like the Cobra Kai version of Top that Gun. That would be so cool. <laughs> I would love that. Just like this total disgusting idiot Tom Cruise just like doofing around. <laughs> and then you'd see Iceman just working so hard and like, taking Maverick aside to really tutor him and try to be a mentor for him. And Maverick just blowing him off and being like, screw you, <laughs> flipping him off and walking away. And Iceman just like 
punching the wall. Like, how can I help him to learn? <laughs> you know, at that point, the team at Cash and Eps really want to get a movie made. And we're working yeah. really hard to emotionally involve the audience. And mm. one of the great things, especially in American films, is the underdog. Everybody likes to root for the underdog. Loves the underdog. And that's why Maverick was second choice. He wasn't going there. But, you know, Cougar put in his wings and Maverick's going. He's second choice to top him, which means he's always playing from behind. He's playing catch up, playing catch up. You know, Matt, you shouldn't be here. And I think we like that character. And it's it's just sort of who we are. You know, we're all playing catch up to something or other. So I think he's more relatable where Iceman, I mean, Iceman's got his problems. I, I always say, you know, I teach writing and I say, well, the movies have to be designed around the main character. It's a different movie. If this is Iceman's movie and he's the main character, it's a very different movie. Because now it's a story about a guy who's holding on too tight. He can't let people in. He's, you know, he's he's rigid in his life. It's cost him. I mean, I could write the Iceman movie and it'd be a very different story, but probably not as emotionally engaging <laughs> because it's yeah, Iceman. <laughs> so he, he's holding his emotions in check. He's holding them. I, I completely agree. I'm actually with you on this 100%. But then I have to ask you, in your mind, who was the better pilot? Maverick or Iceman? One, you've got two great pilots. It'd be a great fight oh, to yeah. see. So I'd really oh, like yeah. to see what they do. In the end of the day, from the Navy point of view at that time, Maverick is the unpredictable one. He's the one who is not going to do it by the book. He's not going to do it the way that you would expect it to do. And he's going to do it something that will throw you off guard. And so okay. therefore, he will basically, in maneuvering, have the upper hand. But it, I would say that you're going to have to go four to five. I mean, it, it is going to be back and forth. It's going to be one win. It's not going to win all the time. And any given day, they're going to bring each other down. But in the end, in the biggest fight, Maverick is the one who is the Maverick. He's the one who you can't figure out what he's going to do next. That's in yeah. his character. Now, there's okay. a lot of Iceman fans out there who I understand who goes, bullshit, I'm an Iceman guy. So he's the guy. I'm all for that. I like that. <laughs> That's great. That's a really good answer. And I love that you kind of kept to the character of Maverick. I mean, he's a Maverick through and through. <laughs> now, whether or not it was intentional for uh, Maverick to be kind of the antagonist, it was impossible for the audience to dislike him just because of Tom Cruise. I mean, Tom Cruise is just brimming with natural charisma and self-confidence, right? You just can't help but be like, yeah, go Maverick. Don't listen to these stupid stuck up tight wads. You do your thing, you cool badass. <laughs> we wrote the movie for Tom. You did. <laughs> yeah, we wrote it. It's the only movie I ever cast. I had it in him in mind from the beginning. I was a Tom Cruise fan, all his early movies. And in creating that character, you know, Maverick's a bit of an asshole. We need to have an actor that you empathize and like. When I gave it to Jerry Bruckheimer, I said, think Tom Cruise in this role. <laughs> read the script, sent back and said, yes, Tom is the guy. He is the guy. He turned it down at first. What? Uh, no, 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 he didn't want to do it. So what they did is they said, well, and his agents wanted to do it. Everybody wanted to do it. He said, I don't know. I don't want to do it. They said, okay, we're going to get you a flight, Tom. And so they sent him to a, a Navy base. He had just finished Legend, so he had long hair. He drives up in his motorcycle. And the pilots <laughs> look at this sort of hippie guy. And, oh, you know, no. they Tom. he's not Tom Cruise as he is now, right? He's uh -huh. an actor. Okay. So... They do what they like to do. They took him up. They threw him all over. You know, they just shook him like crazy. <laughs> he threw up all over the plane. <laughs> he, he came out and said, I love this. I want to do this movie. And that's how <laughs> Tom got involved. But there was nobody else in mind. Oh, wow. That's awesome. <laughs> and, and that's how tough casting is because when you find that right person. Mm -hmm. And is no, there another ice man get Val Kilmer? I don't think so. No, no. He's Val Kilmer, man. Now, so go, going back to the beginning, though, when you say Viper... Viper is his original commanding officer before he got transferred to Top Gun. Well, that, I mean, that's the scene we wanted to talk about, where he goes in, and this guy, Viper, he's like, man, Maverick, you're just so bad, such a total badass. I hate that you're such a badass. Man, you're so badass that I, ju I just don't even have a choice but to send you to Top Gun, because you're just right. such a cool <laughs> badass. And now I hate myself here, for having to acknowledge badass. how badass you are. <laughs> yes. it's, like, it's like in Robot Chicken Star Wars, when Boba Fett is explaining why he fell into the Sarlacc, where it's mm -hmm. like, oh, then a bunch of Jedis flaked me, and they're like, man, this guy's just too badass. 
Chris, we got to take him down. I was like, well, I'm not going to give you the pleasure. So I jumped into the Sarlacc myself. (laughs) And I actually want to point out that this exact scene and what you're describing is one of the reasons that I love Top Gun. I think it's over the top in just the right way. <laughs> like it has, I don't know, you might call it like a kitschy or kind of a campy feel. Like I, they literally say, I feel the need, the need for speed. It's great. I love it. And it almost reminds me of like um, Fast and Furious or uh, what it actually reminds me of is like an anime hero. Tom Cruise in particular. He is the anime hero who is so serious and so badass and so self-aware about it right like he knows exactly how badass he is and he's gonna go be a badass right (laughs) just like you said and i think the movie really points that out about him i love it and this really fits in with the theory that this movie was kind of deeply ingrained into a lot of japanese anime culture that came out following the release of the movie it kind of spawned this whole genre of giant robot animes where there's essentially just giant robots flying around and fighting. And they existed before Top Gun. Like Macross was before Top Gun. Mazinger Z was before Top Gun. And like if you watch the theme song of Macross, the original anime, uh, like it, it looks a lot like Top Gun. Like it shows these planes taking off and the guys, you know, waving around their glow sticks. But... After Top Gun, they really kind of transformed and became a lot more like Top Gun, where they're a lot more just about, like, the relationships and the brotherly love between characters. That's the first time I've actually heard about that. What I do know is that Top Gun was very successful and popular in Japan. Mm-hmm. That it, it had a great run there. And the Japanese posters I love of Top Gun, if you've seen them, they're really great. And, you know, I have a copy of, uh, of the script uh, in Japanese, which is really wow. published version of it. And uh, they, cool. they just they embraced it. So I could see where it had an influence because it, it really was a very popular movie there. Yeah. I mean, like if you look at Macross versus Macross Plus, Macross, the original anime, came out in 1982, four years before Top Gun. And Macross Plus came out in 1994. Okay, yeah. So a a good chunk after after Top Gun. And if you look at like the beginning of both of those, both of them do feature kind of a hotshot pilot. But Macross Plus, like... Macross Plus features a very, very maverick pilot. (laughs) He is just Tom Cruise (laughs) to the extreme. (laughs) Well, and it starts with him doing crazy maneuvers and it even has Uh very similar shots to like Top Gun when they're like tracking their target kind of stuff. Yep. And then getting called in to review with his senior officer who... Choose him out for being too badass and then says, basically, you're just so badass that I'm going to have to send you exactly where you want to go. Right. You're going to have to go be a test pilot on these super awesome things we're testing out. And he does it in the exact same way as in Top Gun, where he's saying it as if it's like a big punishment. But really, it's only a reward. (laughs) And it's exactly what Maverick wants, or in this case, exactly what Dyson wants, is like a one-to-one mirror of Top Gun's opening. Well, and then when the main character from Macross Plus, Dyson, when he's driving in, he comes in mm-hmm. on a motorcycle. On a motorcycle. You know, like and like a plane shot. flies over him. <laughs> yeah. I go, mean, it's very, very Top Gun. Right. And of and course, it great. diverges. I enjoyed Macross you know, Plus. In terms of the actual story. but Oh, yeah, yeah. You know, the story is completely different from Top Gun, but it totally pays homage to it. Yeah, it was very inspired by it, I think. Okay, so one I should watch. Tell me one. Like, I'd love to go see one now. <laughs> uh, I liked Area 88. It's a little older, but I thought it was really fun. <laughs> it's I don't know. It's maybe not the most serious, though. <laughs> That's all right. I'll, I'll, I'll check it out. I want to see it. Sounds like fun. Plus, like other animes paid homage to Top Gun. 801 TTS Airbats has like the exact scene where the boy, he comes riding in on a bike and he looks up and sees the airplane fly over right, him. A bike instead of a motorcycle. <laughs> but also he's he's so not a maverick. <laughs> this is really just kind of, like I said, paying homage or tipping the hat to Top Gun. But the lady who's piloting the plane then buzzes the air traffic control tower and makes the controller spill his coffee all over himself. It's like a one-to-one exact copy of the scene from Top Gun and clearly it's it's a reference to it right and that's fun. Uh, Gundam Gundam has been around uh since before Top yeah, Gun. Gundam. Yeah, it's Gundam's been around, been around for a long time. But Mobile Suit Gundam 0083 Stardust Memories came out in 1991 uh, after Top Gun and it does have some similarities to Top Gun as well. 
And I think both of us agree that this kind of came to a head in Guillermo del Toro's Pacific Rim, which came out in 2013. It very much embraces this idea of two pilots that now in Pacific Rim, they actually have to link their brains in a neural link to control this giant, ultra powerful robot to fight unbelievably huge kaijus, uh, which are just big, big monsters like Godzilla's, right? But I really think that the core of this movie's emotional arc was very much the evolution and kind of the end result of what Top Gun set in motion. Yeah, I mean, and then there are, there are other fun similarities to tropes we see in anime, like how in a lot of anime you'll have the main character who's like a total cool hotshot who doesn't isn't necessarily good but somehow always wins. Right. Well, usually they're talented, but they're not like practiced, like. Ash Ketchum, he's a good trainer, but he's not a conventional trainer, you know? Like, he kind of just does his own thing and wins anyway through the power of friendship. <laughs> or like Yugi from Yu-Gi-Oh! or Big Yugi, you know? He's like a random pharaoh who just kind of can win at any game he tries. Yes. <laughs> and will true. win at any game he tries, no matter what. Right. You know, and then on the flip side, you've got the rival character, the Iceman, someone who's yeah. cold as ice, the Seto Kaiba. This happens a lot where you have this super cool main character and their super by-the-books rival. With whom they might share some sort of erotic relationship. Well, they share a bond, and no one really knows how deep that bond goes. Oh, Only they know. <laughs> kind of to go along with this, one of the most popular theories about Top Gun was popularized by Quentin Tarantino. I don't know if you've heard this theory. Jeez, I, think I don't know. What could, what could this possibly be? <laughs> I don't know. Jeez. Quentin Tarantino? Really? Who? Yeah. <laughs> So he gave this whole monologue about Top Gun in the film Sleep With Me from 1994. Basically, to sum it up for you, the roots of this theory have to do with just a lot of different events and things that happen in the movie that are either suggestive or just kind of hot. <laughs> I would say the majority of Hollywood movies glorify women's bodies, <laughs> but this one glorifies men's bodies. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's kind of a fun change of pace, right? Well, there's like, only one it's woman in the movie. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and she's not like super feminine, which is fine. <laughs> It's Charlie. (laughs) Yeah, your name's Charlie. (laughs) So I'm going to quote most of Quentin Tarantino's speech because he talks and talks. He goes on real long. He says, the whole idea is subversion. One of the greatest scripts ever written in the history of Hollywood is Top Gun. What is Top Gun? You think it's a story about a bunch of fighter pilots, right? No, it's a story about a man's struggle with homosexuality. So you got Maverick. He's on the edge. And you got Iceman and all of his crew. They represent the gay man, and they're saying, go, go the gay way. And you know, Maverick, he could go both ways. Kelly McGillis, who played Charlie, she represents heterosexuality. She's saying, no, no, go the normal way. Play by the rules. He goes to her house, all right? It looks like they're going to have sex. They don't have sex. He gets on the motorcycle. He drives away. And she's just kind of confused about this whole thing. Next scene, literally. And he's right about this. This is the next scene. They're in an elevator and she's dressed like a guy. She's got the cap on. She's got aviator glasses. She's literally wearing the same jacket that Iceman wears. She's like, okay, this is how I got to get this guy. I got to bring him back. So I'm going to do that through subterfuge. I'm going to dress like a man. All right. (laughs) That's how she approaches it. Once again, this is Quentin Tarantino's version of the theory, which I actually like. I think it's pretty creative. I mean, further evidence is that the sex scene originally wasn't in it. And even that scene in the elevator actually originally wasn't in it. It is true that there wasn't enough of the relationship. So originally, um, the story was that Maverick had a relationship with one of the officers. It was a female Mm -hmm. officer. And the Navy said, you're not doing that. You can't do that. Officers cannot (laughs) cannot do that with each other. Um, So therefore, she had to be a contractor. So we had to switch that story around. And then it tested that. You know, I mean, at first, everybody's thinking of the guys and they said, no, we need more of a love story here. And so they went back. That's why it's got that crazy shot in the elevator where uh, Kelly McGillis is wearing that hat and she looks different. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. that was filmed way afterwards. And they just it was a cheap set. <laughs> OK, so that is why she's wearing a hat. And that's why they're in an elevator. It's called it's a pickup shot, guys. And they didn't want to spend <laughs> the money and they did it in a quick afternoon. Uh And yes, she did lose about 10 pounds in between those two things. (laughs) (laughs) Well, right. That means in the movie, all that happened was Maverick stood up Charlie for their date. He showed up late. He took a shower and then went home. (laughs) (laughs) They they do kiss at some other point during this movie. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) 
So Quentin Tarantino continues. He says, all right, but the real ending of this movie is when they fight the MiGs at the end because he's passed over into the gateway. It's all over. When they land, Iceman's been trying to get Maverick this entire time, and finally he's got him. And you know what the last line they have is together? They're all hugging and kissing and happy with each other. And Ice comes up to Maverick (laughs) and he says, man, you can ride my tail anytime. And what does Maverick say? You can ride mine. Now, this, of course, isn't actually what they say. Quentin Tarantino deliberately misquoted it. But what they do say is pretty similar. Iceman says, you can be my wingman anytime. And Maverick says, you can be mine. (laughs) I just want to note the phrase be mine being a popular Valentine's Day conversation heart. (laughs) Right. One issue with Tarantino's theory is that Charlie, she is the one trying to get Maverick to follow the rules. But Iceman is also trying to get Maverick to follow the rules. Everyone's right. trying to get Maverick to follow the rules except freaking Maverick. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but although he was very thorough, Quentin Tarantino actually missed a lot of the sexual undertones in this movie. I want to go through some of the stuff that I noticed. Very early on, right when Maverick goes to the Top Gun class, the instructor is explaining how the pilots have gotten too reliant on missiles. They need to start getting better at dogfights. Wolfman, who's one of the pilots, turns to his RIO. Uh, his name is Chipper. Wolfman says, this gives me a hard on. And Chipper looks longingly at Wolfman and says, don't tease me. The only thing I have to say about this scene is that Iceman stares nonstop at Maverick during the entire meeting. Maverick keeps looking back at him. And when he does, Iceman smiles at him. He flashes those pearly whites. And then later when they're at the bar, shortly after Mm -hmm. that scene, Iceman is totally uninterested in the woman who is hitting on him. Oh, yeah. No, he's like, I'm out. I got to go talk to this hot, new, hot shot Maverick. (laughs) Furthermore, at that bar, Goose and Maverick make a bet where Goose says, all right, the bet's $20. (laughs) You have to have carnal knowledge of a lady this time on the yeah. premises. And then Maverick's At which like, point, oh. Maverick smiles bashfully like, oh, jeez, you got me. <laughs> <laughs> Maverick is just so determined. Last time they made this bet, he couldn't get a girl. But he was like, I can't lose the bet. I need to win the bet somehow. So in very anime fashion, he thought through everything. He was like, wait, there's one thing Goose didn't consider. He just said I have to sleep with someone. He didn't say what gender. So then he went and found some guy who was willing to sleep with him. (laughs) (laughs) Throughout the movie, there is a lot of talk of butts. The flight control tower operator is really mad after Maverick buzzed the tower at over 400 knots, which is really fast. And he's screaming about butts. He says, I want somebody's butt. I want it now. I've had it. I want some butts. butts. (laughs) He he really wants some butts. And of course, we can't gloss over it. The iconic, shirtless, sweaty, glistening (laughs) volleyball scene shining in the sun as the song Playing With The Boys blasts in the background. Now, I want to note there are exactly two instances in this film that make use of slow motion. One is the all-important plot point when Goose dies. And the other... (laughs) The other moment of slow motion in this movie is when they are playing shirtless beach volleyball, (laughs) which means that these two scenes are of equal value plot wise because they both made use of slow motion. (laughs) So, yeah, I mean, it's pretty important. (laughs) Yeah, well, I mean, uh, you know, yeah, it it sort of came a bit out of nowhere. But what? (laughs) the answer is no, it's not true. It's Quentin Tarantino just being himself and just spouting off and, you know, going going on a rant. But I don't mind the interpretation. I don't mind if people want to lay into that. I really don't. I actually had a young man who was a student say a movie helped him come out. I mean, good for him. I'm glad that That's great. it did. Some of the choices were made by the director, Tony Scott, in terms of the look of the film. Nowhere in the script did we write, and they stand in the locker room with towels on, spending their bodies and doing this. <laughs> or, or we didn't say, and they, they put olive oil on themselves when they play volleyball as they run around. Okay, So... <laughs> that was what Tony Scott did in the on the set. Okay, why did Tony Scott do this? He sort of wanted to create male beefcake. I think his thought, yeah. his mind was, he wanted to give the women something to look at and hear these guys and show off your pecs and, and do this sort of thing. And, and there's there's a documentary on the Top Gun video, the making the Danger Zone, making a Top Gun, where Tony talks about he used the work of a photographer. I think his name was Dave Weber. And he used his work in a book 
where he has a lot of models and he liked the look of the models. You look at that look now. I mean, the handsome looking guys you know, just looks like Top Gun, the cuts, the haircuts, the look, the way they're dressed. Yeah. Well, now you probably say that's a little West Hollywood. And you go, OK, that's got a certain look now that we would associate with that community. Add up all the pieces together and I can see where people draw that conclusion. And again, I don't have a problem with it. It doesn't bother me whatsoever. Sort of people having fun with it, have fun with it. And if you like that interpretation, go for it. Right. And if you haven't noticed, you know, listening to this podcast and other episodes, like both of us really love looking at a movie in a way that we never saw it before. Any theory that allows you to watch the movie and see it as a completely different movie is A-OK in my book. Right. <laughs> like this very much makes it into a very different movie. So I love it. Well, there's nothing wrong with it. You know. But Quinn, if I ever see you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my first experience with Top Gun was actually, I was very young, and of course Top Gun is rated R, so I couldn't see it. So my first experience with the movie was actually the movie Hot Shots by Jim Abrahams. <laughs> and then later on, my dad showed us Top Gun so that we would know what it was about. Dude, Hot Shots, let's get into it. So Hot Shots is the very fondly remembered 1991 parody of Top Gun, which was directed by Jim Abrams and written by Jim Abrams and Pat Proft. I mean, it was just loaded with amazing comedic actors like Charlie Sheen, Valeria Galino, Carrie Elwes is great. Um, oh, yeah. My deep blue eyes. <laughs> <laughs> what does a chafing dish do? <laughs> Why, it keeps food warm for serving. I thought that was a crock pot. Oh, no, no, oh, no, 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 no. no. <laughs> uh, crock pots for cooking all day. <laughs> well, fine. I don't want it. <laughs> I'll take it. You stay out of this topper. <laughs> Why would sense. Topper take it? <laughs> he had nothing to do with it. <laughs> he clearly misunderstood the entire exchange. The problem wasn't that neither Ramada nor Carrie Elwes wanted the shaping dish. <laughs> the problem was that Carrie Elwes was trying to take it home and it wasn't his. <laughs> So I actually think the plot of Hot Shots, not the silliness and the craziness and the overall zaniness of Hot Shots, but the plot that this guy in charge of this squad has basically sold them out by sabotaging their airplanes and by hiring Topper, who he knows is unstable and going to wreck the morale and the safety of the entire squad in order to get the government to sign a contract for better airplanes. I think that's actually pretty yeah. interesting and believable well, and plot. Topper's arc is pretty interesting in some ways. He knows he's a loose cannon and he doesn't want to screw anything up. He wants to stay away. <laughs> Every time Block like tries to assign him to anything, he resists. Like when he was like, Topper, you're going to be the point man for this. You're the lead. Topper's like, Block, there's something my dad always used to say. Not playing to win is like sleeping with your sister. <laughs> in the end, it's just illegal. <laughs> 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 but like no clearly he understands the issue of putting him in charge of the squad this movie starts with topper's essentially backstory which is actually his father's backstory the thing that haunts topper throughout his whole life. oh man what a backstory <laughs> is that his dad buzz harley was just flying around yeah, being an flying idiot around with ryan styles and then he ejected and then mailman's ejection <laughs> thing didn't work and mailman was mistaken for a deer and got well, no. shot. First he crashed and survived <laughs> and then was mistaken for a deer and shot and eaten. <laughs> eaten by the family of a guy who would later be in the academy with Topper. Who mounted his head on a wall. And you know, if it's any solace, he didn't have seconds. And Mailman's son doesn't care at all about that. He's like, oh, it doesn't matter. <laughs> but like, if you look at that scene, what did Buzz do? Like, he ejected, which is fine. That's what you should do in that situation. Like, just because Mailman's um, uh -huh. ejection seat didn't work, that's not really Buzz's fault. But, but, like, he was totally dicking around like an idiot. Right. <laughs> he was just like, all right, let's see what this baby can do. <laughs> and then his co-pilot was like, no, this thing's not rated for more than Mach 3. <laughs> and he's like, Mach 4, Mach 5, gotta push it to the limit. <laughs> it's like, no, you don't have to push it to the limit. <laughs> Why does he suddenly think he needs to destroy this place? <laughs> I mean, it's a pretty good parody of the opening of Top Gun. <laughs> it is. Maverick is just being an idiot. <laughs> so at the end, the thing that gets Topper to get over what his dad did is Block telling the truth. 
which is not that he didn't go crazy and <laughs> well, dig the around and destroy could the plane just necessarily. be lying. <laughs> but also it doesn't matter yes. if he's lying or not because nothing about Block's story fixes anything that happened. In Block's story, his dad has presumably already done all that stupid stuff. Yes. And instead of just ejecting, <laughs> he tries to pull the plane back together, which yes. doesn't matter. The plane is falling he's... apart. That's not helpful. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, it's really good. There's though. no he's, reason he's to be stapling it together, and grabbing the wing. <laughs> he's going to be helping. Fall off. He should be helping mailman who couldn't eject. <laughs> yes. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, even if it was somehow helpful to put the plane back together instead of helping mailman, none of that changes the fact that the whole reason this happened was because he was flying dangerously no one was saying <laughs> yes. that he did the wrong thing by just ejecting <laughs> no that was wasn't the failure <laughs> that he was being an idiot box story changes nothing <laughs> no dude he was a hero according to that version <laughs> oh man such a good movie <laughs> oh my god i loved it I thought, it, <laughs> yeah. I thought it was fabulous. I love the, you know, well, you know, it's a, sort of a form of flattery, right? That it's so good. You want yeah. to satirize it. I mean, I, SNL has done satire. They've done a joke where, if you've seen it, where Val Kilmer goes in the in the cockpit as Iceman in, in, a, in a jet plane, you know. <laughs> and that shots was hysterical. I, my, one of my favorite things is, I got it. I got it. You know, it's I forget the character. who We know he's about to die in the plane. These guy, guy who killed Kennedy. You know, I mean, it was just great <laughs> <evidence>. <laughs> And what was so smart is they used one of the, the producers from Top Gun, and he could create a lot of the looks uh, from Top Gun. And so I thought they did yeah. really nice. <laughs> it was a great takeoff. You know, I mean, it's a good focus, movie. Focus. I, I don't know how connected you are to uh, Top Gun Maverick, and it's okay. I understand you might not have anything to do with it at all, but there is one fan theory. Because... We've seen a shot in one of the trailers where there is a woman who is dressed in military gear and she's standing next to a general. And people are theorizing that this is Penny Benjamin next to her father. <laughs> Do you know if she's going to make an appearance in Top Gun Maverick? Or <laughs> Well, I'll have to use a quote from Top Gun. I could tell you, but then I'd have to kill you. You know. <laughs> <laughs> All right. <laughs> I guess we'll just have to wait then. I did a sequel in the early 90s, a different sequel. We wrote one. But Tom, at that point, was deciding between doing a sequel to Top Gun or doing Mission Impossible. Right. And oh, he, he wow. went off and did Mission Impossible. And, you know, it was a good career move. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he did a good job with that. And Paramount wouldn't make the movie without Tom. I said, look, let's just, you know, we'll create new stars here. It's it's a vehicle. There's a lot of young, great actors. And, you know, we don't have – and they said, no, nope, it's Tom or nothing. So, yeah. From what we know about Top Gun Maverick, it seems like Maverick – Throughout the past 30 years, his character is still a captain. I think he's a test pilot now. So I was just wondering how you feel about Maverick's evolution as portrayed in this new movie. I would say they mined the original movie very well, having read okay. the script and knowing about it. And I think it's a nice continuation. Maverick's his own worst enemy, and therefore he doesn't go up to the ranks and he doesn't get promoted mm -hmm. where he should. He doesn't become an admiral. I don't think anybody wants him in charge of a ship, you know, so, no. <laughs> that sort of thing. I'm a big fan of Tom Cruise. I think Tom does great work, and I know he's going to bring it and bring a life to the character, and I think it's it's going to feel like it's a continuation. I think that they did a nice job with, okay, here's where we are now. Here's who these characters are. And there's some interesting surprises, which I can't tell you. I'm really excited to see it. I can't wait. <laughs> well... Um, thank you so much for talking to us and, and uh, you know, entertaining our silly theories and telling us the backstory of the movies you've written. So we have some time now that we can talk about your book, uh, which I read and I think it's great. This is Screenwriting is Rewriting by Jack Epps Jr. I graduated from the American Film Institute. I have a master's in screenwriting. So at first it kind of seemed like stuff I'd read before. But then as I got into it, like you have some very interesting tactics and stuff for rewriting that I really loved that I hadn't necessarily heard before. The way you say to create a game plan, like to pick like five notes and then just create a plan of how you're going to implement those notes and create like a schedule for yourself. I think that just makes what could be a really daunting, overwhelming task into something that's just very easy and doable. Well, as you said, daunting, overwhelming task. And I think that's what happens to writers. Me, I, I, I understand it. It's what I call the circle of confusion. You just you just can't figure it out. The notes are canceling each other out. They're contradictory. So it's actually a process that Jim and I used, and it was great because we were long distance. We had to organize our rewrites. By organizing, 
it starts to bring clarity and you start to see what the level of importance is and you see the areas that make sense. Oh, yeah, I see this. I've gotten this note four times. There's something here I've got to deal with. And then a game plan is how am I going to attack this? So what's my methodology rather than just hacking away at it? People get notes in the first draft and they hate their draft. They've lost mm -hmm. faith in it. They throw it away. And now they start from page one and do a whole new draft. I'm a big believer in inspiration. When you do that first draft, it's, it, you are inspired. There are things coming out of that draft that are great. And they may not all work, but they're really good. Now, if you throw that whole draft away, you do it, start from page one. Generally, it's a poor imitation of the first draft without the inspiration. Look to salvage the best parts of your first draft mm -hmm. and then use that as a basis to start to build out your story. Unless there's something systemically wrong. Okay, for example, the first draft we did of Dick Tracy, we did not put Junior Tracy in. Okay, that was a oh. big mistake. John Landis said, where's Junior Tracy? We said, oh, right. Well, that changed the whole concept of the movie. And that's the only draft we ever said, we have to page one this. Mm -hmm. Otherwise, what's good? Protect what's good. Preserve what's good. Use it as a basis to build out your story and to add elements to it. Most of the time, I just love whatever I wrote because otherwise I wouldn't have written it, right? And I'm like, this is so good. It's so good. And you can even send it out to people and maybe they think it's good as well. But then because we're such a like social species, you know, and the opinions of others matter to us, you might get one person who really, really hates it. And then all of a sudden you're like, oh man, maybe I, maybe what am I doing? Maybe it really is terrible. And so what I really loved was Toward the beginning of your book, you have a, an advice where you say, create a touchstone, a symbol that represents your original inspiration, like something that you can go back to and that you always remember what was good about this story, what really hooked you to it emotionally, so that no matter what notes you get, you can always go back and be like, okay, I remember why this was gold. I just have to uncover more of that gold so other people can see it. <laughs> Well, you're exactly hit it on the nose there where it's easy to, to lose confidence in your work. And one person can really just undermine our confidence as writers. And that's why I believe it's important to create a writing group. No writer should write alone. Work with people who understand what you're trying to do. And they're going to give you notes for your intention. Because if that person who hated the script, well, I would do it this way. Well, that's not the what I want to do. And they just hijack your script from you. Before you do notes, say, okay, let's talk first about what's positive, because that note no one ever gives you. They don't say, hey, what I really liked about this, they'll say, wow, here's the problem. And now you've got nothing but negativity. Mm -hmm. And, you know, negativity is hard to overcome. So if you have positive notes, then it's easier for you to hear the more the critiques. What, what do we have to work on? Your touchstone for Top Gun, you said your original inspiration was a photograph of a pilot in an F-14 with two other F-14s on either side of him. And that kind of became the inspiration for the screenplay. And I just I thought that was great because that kind of is the core of that movie, right? It's not just a pilot in an F-14. It's a pilot with two guys on either side of him, right? It's about the team and the, the, the relationships and the friendships between them. That photograph just really made me want to write the script. There were warriors at 28,000 feet, and there they are. And I said, wow, this, this is amazing. And I love the world, the location of it. And I said, this is so, this is be so great to see a movie shot up here. It has to, that's what I said, Don and Jerry. We don't shoot this at 28,000 feet. I don't want to do the movie. That became the guiding light for the script. To our listeners who read this book, I will say read it to the end, because at the end of your book, you have interviews with a bunch of screenwriters, including Robert Town, who's, you know, arguably one of the greatest screenwriters ever. And then you also have like actual studio script notes that you received, like a letter you got from Tom Hanks about about Turner and Hooch and stuff like that. You know, we're all working together. We're writers working together. And I want to share some of the things we had. And I also want to talk to other writers about their process, because there's no one way to rewrite. This is, this is my methodology, but you get, again, 10 writers in a the room, they're all going to do it differently. So there's no right way. I'm just trying to help people organize. Organize your rewrite, because that's the most important thing. Organize your approach. And, you know, Robert Town's great, and the opportunity to talk to Robert Town and, and just get his thoughts and what he does. And what's interesting, I just had one of my colleagues at USC who's in the games division, and uh -huh. he was writing a book on gaming, and he used the approach in terms of writing a, a nonfiction book, uh -huh. um, in terms of organizing his rewrite. One of the things I would emphasize, and this is very old school, and Richard basically said it really helped him, is print out a hard copy of your script and annotate your script and write notes to yourself. Because as you're reading through it, 
Your mind is working, your subconscious is working, you're getting thoughts and ideas you won't remember. So write about things you like in the script, write things you don't like, fixes, changes. If you print it out, you've got that wonderful white page. It's just a notebook to write on. So don't <laughs> neglect that step. That's something I'd like to emphasize. Well, thank you so much for coming on our podcast. Uh, thanks for talking to us about all your movies. It's been definitely a blast. And thanks for writing all your movies. Thank you so much for giving us so much of your time. And thanks for going along with all of our kooky theories and crazy questions. No, it's fun. I enjoyed it. I really enjoyed it. I thought I thought it was fun to hear the fan theories. I, I think they're fun. Yeah. Um, it's just digging deeper and having it taken to a level. You know I mean? It's sort of like, you know, it's like fan fiction when people write stories after work. I think, I think it's mm -hmm. great. It yeah. just keeps it alive. And, and I'm glad you enjoyed them. The point is we wrote them for people to enjoy. That's the point. I'm going to include a link to Top Gun in the description, so watch it again with our theories in mind. With the words of Jack Epps, the writer of the movie, in mind. <laughs> I'm going to include a link to the YouTube video of Quentin Tarantino's version of this theory. We're going to include a link in the description where you can buy the book. Screenwriting is rewriting. We had a great time talking to him about it. If you have any thoughts or questions or you just want to talk to us, maybe you have any theories of your own you'd like us to look at, uh, you know, you can reach out to us on Twitter at Popcorn Isn't Real. Music for this episode was provided by Christine. And we're going to let Jack Epps Jr. play us out. The popcorn isn't real, but it sort of is real. So I don't know. I'm sort of confused about that. But I think it's a good title. All right, everybody. Take care of yourselves. Be well. And if you're a writer, just stay with it. Believe in yourself. It's going to work out.